Welcome to the first episode of A City for All, a podcast by Richmond for All. I'm your host, Quentin Robbins. We're going to be breaking down city and state politics bi-weekly. Make sure to follow us on the app of your choice. Turning to this past Monday's school board meeting, the big story of the night is the students, teachers, and parents of the Richmond Virtual Academy won not only a fight to oppose layoffs of its entire workforce, but in addition, a new all-virtual school for the district. After months of back and forth with staff and threats of layoffs, Superintendent Cameras finally committed to retaining all 72 teachers, either by keeping their current positions in the virtual academy or through transfers to other schools in the district. The vote to establish the Virtual Academy as a school of record passed by the same 5-4 block that has gotten headlines for supporting the Schools Build Schools resolution, with Kenya Gibson, Stephanie Rizzi, Mariah White, Dr. Shonda harris Mohammed, and Jonathan Young voting in favor. The vote to make the Academy a school of record was bundled with a vote approving an audit of current employment counts throughout the district. Board member Gibson noted that the district has a discrepancy of approximately 80 job positions relative to last year's budget, and the associated funds are currently unaccounted for. Look out for the results of that audit. Another big news item raised by educators during the board meeting is the vote to elect the Richmond Education Association as the bargaining representative for Richmond Public Schools teachers and staff. That vote is happening this week on Friday, April 15th from 4 to 8 p.m. and on Saturday, the 15th from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. at Martin Luther King Jr. Middle School. This vote will likely come down to turnout. In the context of this union election, we have seen anti-union foundations from out of the state sending mailers to the workforce encouraging that they vote against the union. Finally, the school board voted to adjust the approved size of George Wythe to 1800 from a previously approved 1600. This came after pressure from a joint press conference between the mayor and council, which has withheld funds for five months. Several school board members, including Chair Dr. Harris Muhammad, Mariah White, and Stephanie Rizzi, spoke about the protracted fight that the mayor and city council have waged against individual school board members and the delays to the construction process that it has caused. Additionally, there is an open question if a new request for proposal must be submitted now that the school size has changed, which would likely delay the construction of a new George with further. On to council and the mayor. As noted before, on the morning of April 11th, Mayor LeVar Stoney, Council President Cynthia Newbill, and Council Members Mike Jones, Anne Francis Lambert, and Andreas Addison held a joint press conference where they demanded that the school board concede to expanding the size of George Wythe High School to 1,800 students. The group cited an increase in population on Southside from the federal census. However, it is unclear if the census justifies building a larger school or if this is a waste of public revenue. From a recent report from Virginia Public Media, the outlet reported that, quote, University of Virginia Weldon Cooper Center demographer Hamilton Lombard says the more important census-related number to look at is the population under 18, which Cropper, the school's demographer, actually overestimated. The 2020 census counted 38,000 residents under 18, while Cropper expected 42,000, end quote. When asked by the media if he had the votes to pass this ordinance, should the board agree, 
Mayor Stoney seemed confident in his ability to control his council colleagues. We will be tracking this bill as it moves through council. At Monday's council meeting, we saw climate activists from Green New Deal Virginia, the fall of the James Sierra Club, Virginia Interfaith Power and Light, and RVA, Interfaith Climate Justice League, among others, advocating for city council to fund some of the recommendations from the Climate and Ecological Emergency Resolution that Councilmember Catherine Jordan introduced and council passed unanimously this past September. Among many things, they are asking for building maintenance to reduce energy consumption, to transition the city's vehicle fleet to electric, and for an expansion of the tree canopy to combat heat islands in the city. In particular, that resolution calls for an equitable plan to phase out reliance on gas and shift to accelerated investment in city-owned renewable energy and recognizes that the continued operation of the city's gas utility is an obstacle to the city's goal of net zero emissions. The Richmond Gas Works has seen an increase in the amount of gas leaking from the city over the past decade. According to data compiled by the Sierra Club, the Richmond Gas Works has seen an increase in the amount of gas leaks from city infrastructure over the past decade. The past 10 years of leakage are equivalent to more than 4.5 metric tons of CO2, or the same as putting nearly a million additional cars on the road for a year. We'll see if council ends up funding projects that will reduce emissions. Finally, a group of firefighters came to council to advocate for pay parity with the surrounding counties. They have not had an update to their pay scale since 2006, and in the intervening 16 years, have had multiple freezes in their step pay. This is particularly interesting given that council is considering an ordinance to allow firefighters to collectively bargain. It'll be interesting to see how firefighters can win raises when they're able to do so. In today's interview, we will be chatting with Delegate Sam Rasool from Roanoke. Sam has spent his time in the Virginia House of Delegates as a fierce advocate for climate justice, keeping corporate money out of elections and workers' rights. Our conversation is in the wake of his Democratic primary bid for lieutenant governor and the severe losses the Democrats took in statewide and state house elections. This is a great investigation of how Virginia Democrats lost power and how we can move forward in this landscape. Take a listen. All right. Hey, Sam Rasool. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me, Quinn. Yeah, absolutely. Really excited to have you as our inaugural guest for the City for All podcast. So just jumping right in, we are recording this interview on the heels of the regular session, and I believe in the midst of a special budget session for the General Assembly. And I just wanted to talk about this most recent GA session um, and what you see as some wins for Democrats, given a loss of majority in the House. Look, it's, it was a tough election. I know we'll get into that a little bit. That setting up going from a trifecta to holding on by one vote in the Senate from a Democratic perspective is uh, quite a, a big change. Certainly lots of lessons learned uh, as far as that's concerned. But just looking back on the session, we were able to push back against some of the some of the bad things that were were coming our way. We wanted to defend a lot of the progress that was made over the last uh, couple of years, and for the most part, we were able to do that. But there were still a few things that uh, snuck in. So um, hopefully, we'll be able to hold on and do our best to make some progress. Uh, yeah, I mean that's good to hear. It's unfortunate that we are now in this defensive pattern. 
But, you know, I'm glad that you're still in there fighting the good fight. So sort of coming out of this session, and I know the budget is, is pending, and that's a big fulcrum of how things will shake out. But do you feel like, given the session that you've had, given the loss of the majority, that Democrats have positioned themselves well for midterm elections in 2022, and then the whole General Assembly in 2023? Yeah, I think that's still the jury's out. Uh, It's still up in the air. I don't know if we've had quite the important autopsy of what happened in 2021 collectively. Uh, are we uh, really taking and trying to figure out real lessons learned in, in moving forward? I struggle to understand what's going to happen in 22 and, and 23. The writing on the wall doesn't look too great in lots of ways. Uh, if my Democratic Party can't build some real broad coalitions, look, there's some lessons that hard lessons that need to be learned. And, and to just chalk it up to say, oh, well, you win some and lose some is, is clearly, I think, being ignorant about it or blaming Joe Biden's low poll numbers. I mean, I've, I've seen all kinds of things. And, and we've got to uh, make sure that we're bringing this back to basics uh, for folks all across Virginia. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's right on the money. I think an unfortunate narrative that you hear within the mainline Democratic Party is that it's just an inevitable pendulum swing. uh, And there isn't really a feeling that there is a a duty or a responsibility to win to materially advance people's conditions in the state. But on that vein, uh, after Democrats lost big in 2021, you had some pretty pointed critiques of how nominated candidates in the DPVA ran their general election campaigns. Can you talk about what happened? Yeah, I really felt as though we were hyper-focused on Donald Trump, even though we had had the majority for two years, had accomplished some great things. We could have you know, highlighted some of the things that we were able to, to pass through, some priorities. However, right in the spring, one year ago, at this point, uh, we were already focusing on Yunkin equals Trump. And it's just such a lazy way to run. And with so much to talk about and so many positive things to focus on, uh, we did not give people the benefit of the doubt. We did not respect voters. And, you know, sadly, uh, that began at the very top of the ticket. And we uh, certainly paid the price on down. And so we had the obligation, we as Democrats had the obligation to make our case that we've been in power. We're being careful stewards of that power. We're continuing to be inclusive and bringing you in. And instead, we decided to talk about Donald Trump. And sadly, we haven't looked back and said that was a mistake, I think, collectively. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think something during the general election that was a a real shock to me gave me a ton of pause about how the party, specifically the Democratic Party of Virginia, was functioning was there were some mailers and a billboard and a few billboards around the state that were essentially Trump mailers. They were designed to look like Republican Party mailers. And and only in very tiny print did you see that they were from the Democratic Party of Virginia. 
I my assumption is that these mailers were targeted towards left-leaning folks as a, a fear-mongering tactic of the mailers specifically, but you know, the billboards were seen by everyone. I, I want to sort of like hear what your response to that sort of tactic is. If you think it's good, I, th- I think we may know the answer and sort of what you think the result of doing taking action like that is. Well, for me, we, we developed a curriculum around kind of the neuroscience of how all of this stuff works in elections. And the most impactful emotion, the strongest emotion in the human brain is fear. And right behind that is trust. And so you can either double down on the politics of fear, which is exactly what happened in in the Democratic campaign last year. It was sadly at the top of the ticket was just a lazy way to campaign when you're sending out these mailers from Democrats uh, saying that Trump's endorsing and supporting Youngkin. You know, you you pretty much shot yourself in the foot. And and not only that, you're wasting uh, resources. Uh, where we didn't have the field campaigns that we should. We weren't organized all across the 133 localities uh, like we could be. Just imagine our share, uh, which was a little more than half of the $140 million spent just on the gubernatorial race. If a fraction of that was spent into uh, year-round infrastructure, uh, boots on the ground, Sadly, that was uh, not the investment that was made. And and these investments in these uh, billboards and these mailers just saying Yunkin equals Trump were counterproductive. Yeah, I think I I sort of want to posit a working theory that a couple folks that I've been chatting with have. So the coalition that Yunkin needed to unite was basically his corporate business first base that self-styles as a little bit more socially progressive, but in any way economically. Um, And he needed to unite that base with very strong Trump voters. Youngkin, outside of the critical race theory rhetoric, did very little to gain the support of, of Trump. And so my view is not just that the mailers and the billboards that the DPVA sent out were lazy. I think it may have even helped Yunkin encourage the unity of his base and electoral turnout because the Democratic Party did the job of identifying Yunkin with Trump for the Trump base. Yeah, you know, while uh, I haven't seen anything kind of objectively pointing to that, and it is tough to to objectify that. Um, if you look at the election turnout, you'll hear some people say that it was the it was the most number of voters that have, have ever come out in a gubernatorial election. That is exactly true. However, this is the first time we've had forty five days of voting in a gubernatorial election. So a better measure is to see the drop off from the 2020 presidential election to the 2021 gubernatorial election. And the drop-off for Republicans was 15%. The drop-off for Democrats was 33%. And so what a drastic drop-off that we had because we failed to inspire. And in fact, if you look at that and say, man, that drop-off, which is not very much for Republicans, uh, to have only a 15% drop-off from the presidential to the gubernatorial says that maybe some of the work that we did as Democrats to tell everyone Yunkin equals Trump probably was productive for Yunkin and, and he didn't ha- have to do much. 
I think I, I, I concur with that. In, in building coalitions, there are many moving parts, and I don't think that the Democratic Party of Virginia hurt the cause of, of uniting their base. You know, I mean, I think just from your general frame, it seems like you don't think the party has really had that, that moment of analysis or, or analytical reckoning about their failures. In fact, I got an email April 5th, I have it in front of me, from the Democratic Party of Virginia. Top quote, I am the reason Youngkin won from Donald Trump. Glenn Youngkin owes his 2021 election victory to Donald Trump. So it seemed like despite the most recent elections for party leadership, we're kind of taking the same tact. And as a progressive Democrat in this state, I kind of want to hear about what advice you have to push the party to talk about kitchen table issues, to be more inclusive of the voices of working people instead of, you know, focusing on this Trump rhetoric, specifically, you know, honing in on on suburban voters. What can we do to make our party better? Well, uh, a few things that uh, come to mind. We really have to make our case to everyone. And part of making our case to everyone is understanding that we need to bring some people along. That may mean that people haven't quite evolved on on certain issues and certain parts of the, the Commonwealth, but allowing them the space to evolve is is important. And to not conflate that with my next point, which is understanding the economics of money and politics. We know that money is very important in winning elections. You cannot win elections and have great sustainable races without an adequate amount of investment. However, not only is there a point of diminishing return at certain points, there is a point where maybe you've had to compromise your values so much to get those next dollars that it actually begins to hurt you. And to appreciate that more and more money in our elections doesn't necessarily equate to more and more votes. And to think about where and at what point it actually hurts us to take that next dollar. And then lastly, as Democrats, we believe that these institutions have an important role in our lives. And I think it's critically important for us to own up to the fact that we need to defend them and invest in them and make our case that institutions like Medicare, Social Security, like in our public schools, in our transportation system, stand by them and say, we need these investments and make sure we're not on our heels all the time when the other side is punching down. Totally. There, there's this quote from, I can't remember which of Terry McCulloch's books, uh, but he basically takes this very neutral stance towards campaign cash and says, it's just gas in the tank. Uh, the thing that I really loved about the article you wrote for Cardinal News is that there, there is um, a point of diminishing returns for this campaign cash and something that Democrats in this state and I think Democrats nationwide have not yet reckoned with is the way that it does warp policy outcomes and gains for folks who can't afford to contribute. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so <clears throat> we would love to see uh, not only uh, campaign contribution limits, banning of, of certain donations, especially from public service corporations like Dominion, introducing innovative voucher systems like they've done in certain parts of the country, which really uh, encourages more and more 
voter involvement and, and is really empowering. Uh, and one other thing to keep in mind is that, you know, I also believe that our primary system that we have isn't quite as, uh, as open as, as it could be. I think that having a primary system that was, that was more open or even doing away with our current primary system like they've done in some other states incentivizes us to have broad conversations with the masses as opposed to, well, who are the 10% of people who are going to come out in my primary? Uh, so a broader, broader conversation that as we think about, you know, the type of electoral form we need. Yeah, totally. In the last election, in, in particular with the governor's election, we saw Republicans running ahead of Democrats on public education. Terry McAuliffe had this gaffe where he asserted that parents should have uh, any choice in their children's education. Youngkin ran with the gaffe and sort of used that moment to push a formulation of public education that essentially equates to charterization without democratic input. And I think this is really surprising for me because I think Democrats, particularly in Richmond, we have a, a history around voting for and appointing a, an elected school board where we've been the party that's asserted that there should be democratic governance over schools that, you know, more often than not, we should fight against the privatization of very vital public resource. And so where do you see... Democrats falling short on education? And how do we get the message that Democrats will be the party that will fundamentally protect public education? Yeah, we, we certainly seeded that narrative in interesting ways. I think first is to understand the complexities of what actually happened in the, the last election. Um, I think when we heard these quote-unquote conversations around education, uh, they were really more about a couple of other things, first and foremost. One was agency. The conservatives are very good at framing agency and having control. So it was less, are we talking about certain things that are top of mind for people or the framing that we're going to take away some power from someone? And that was a great framing for them. And we, especially after the McAuliffe gaffe, did not have, he did not have a great response to it. And it should have been, of course, we want parents very involved and they should be involved in talking about public education. We've got parents that are appointed to certain positions at the state level. We encourage parents as much as possible to be running for these positions at the school board level. And of course, we need them involved because the point wasn't about in my opinion, primarily about parents in education. It was about the agency, the ability to be able to impact it if you wanted to. And it's kind of like me telling you, Quentin, the, the blue pen that you have on your desk, I'm not allowing you to use it anymore. Well, you weren't thinking about it so much about the blue pen. It's kind of random, but now you are. And, and now you're like, well, who is Sam to tell me I can't use the blue pen that's on my desk? And then secondly, the, the conversation clearly around critical race theory uh, and some other pieces there around divisive concepts, et cetera, that just clearly dog whistles. And, and we're seeing that play out in the 2022 uh, nationwide uh, elections as well. 
moving forward. In the case of fully funding public education, we need to double down our efforts there. In the case of agency, letting people know as much as possible, we want them involved in what's happening in our education system, finding innovative ways of doing that, while at the same time appreciating that there needs to be a a coordinated effort. Yeah, like just from my policy read, and I hinted at this, I think, a little bit earlier, is um, it seems like Yunkin was used the idea of parent autonomy and student autonomy to push policy that would privilege the loudest but you know least popular voices. Like for for example, you know, with the charterization efforts that we saw in the GA, he essentially wanted to like take the power away from democratically elected school boards where parents have direct input in how their community schools are governed and give the power to create those charter schools to the VDOE. You know, similar with the CRT stuff, they tried to create this divisive concepts law. Um, and they essentially wanted to privilege the the individual voices, though I believe them to be in the minority of Virginians, to retaliate against school districts and their teachers. Yeah, and we, we continue to see those dynamics play out. Um, sadly, utilizing our you know local school boards as a political tool, and whether it be my friends in Loudoun or uh, in other spots, uh, are just caught in a uh, uh, tough spot. So, you know, hopefully we can turn the corner here on the narrative. We just haven't seen that uh, recaptured yet. Yeah. So veering back into money and politics and also the environment, you've been very outspoken during your time in office about the construction of pipelines in Southwest Virginia you know, you mentioned Dominion and public service corporations and their influence on the politics of uh, enrichment. I think first thing, what, what's sort of the landscape now? And can you narrate for us the impacts uh, of the extraction that you've seen in Southwest Virginia? Yeah, well, we had an uphill battle for many years now. We were fortunate enough to collectively rally around and defeat the Atlantic Coast Pipeline or show them that it was just too much to be in their interest to move forward. And now the Mountain Valley Pipeline has had a series of setbacks for years, uh, not only more than doubling the the cost to complete it, um, but a variety of pieces of litigation. And, And so it seems rather uphill. But the problem that we face there is that people look back and say, man, Democrats are the ones that enabled this. We were speaking uh, about wanting to protect the environment and the climate catastrophe and all these wonderful points when it's convenient. But when push came to shove, when we were talking about building the largest pipelines by far in Virginia history, when we were talking about two pipelines that would at least double the footprint um, emissions that would be attributable to Virginia, it was tough to find Democratic voices to, to stand up just because of the sheer amount of money. Here we are against all of those odds and hopefully on the cusp of turning the corner once and for all with regards to the Mountain Valley Pipeline. Um, However, it's still there. And we hope that while, you know, nearly all of the trees have been cut along the way, while maybe half of the pipe has been laid, while many streams have been disturbed, 
to stop it, to respect the fact that disturbance that is to our water sources, to our environment, the fact that 10% of methane leaks come from these pipelines. Uh, methane is far more destructive than carbon dioxide in the short term uh, with regards to uh, global warming. So there's a lot that's at stake in moving forward. Yeah, I think I think that's something in particular that's of interest to me where like this pipeline issue is not a one party issue. It's unfortunately bipartisan in the state. And during the first McAuliffe administration, um, it's my understanding is when a lot of these pipelines were really pushed out and rubber stamped by by the executive office. Do you see voters holding that grudge against the Democratic Party for these specific pipelines and in some cases even voting Republican out of frustration for the first McCall administration having done that? Well, absolutely. Locally, this is a, a, a real issue and people are frustrated. But, you know, the, the bigger issue, Quinn, is the values that uh, we espouse have to be consistent for people to say, oh, I can count on them when it comes to the environment, when it comes to my land rights, when it comes to protecting my water, when it comes to pushing back against powerful special interests, that there is a consistent value that the Democrats are uh, bringing. And and right now, you know, I feel like in, in some ways we violated that trust We're asking voters every uh, year to say, hey, trust us uh, this time. We're going to get it done. We've got your back. And then people kind of look around the corner and say, well, why did this happen? You know, this is a it's it's a long term battle all the time to try to build coalitions to win over hearts and minds. Uh, It's just, you know, we need to make sure we're doing everything that we can to press forward and, and not take steps back there. Totally. Yeah. And I think something that that we sort of think about all the time is nationally, both the Democratic and Republican Party have been laser focused on the suburbs, which, as we have seen in in our elections, turns out to be quite a tricky strategy, uh, with suburban voters being a little bit more, more fickle. And so a long term vision that I really love to see is, and I think you as well, would be to to figure out a way to boost urban and rural coalition building and really figure out a way to dig deep in the cities and expand our base in rural areas. I don't know if you want to talk about your vision for the future of the Democratic Party and how you think we might be able to get there. Well, a couple easy things to keep in mind. Number one, don't pander to any specific groups. You've got to articulate common values that most everyone can appreciate. We're going to be present. We're going to be respectful. We're going to be listening. No matter who you are in poor inner city and suburban areas and rural areas, this is important. And then second, being present in all of these spots. And that's why in this past election, we struggled as Democrats across the board in progressive circles in not just in black communities, but in brown communities, Hispanics, Indian, Muslims, either stayed home or or voted the other way. And in rural areas uh, as well, became even redder. But if you look at the vote swing by congressional district, 2017 to 2021, so from the last gubernatorial election to this one, and you look by congressional district, whether it was urban, suburban, or rural, 
every single congressional district in Virginia swung to the right. So to me, there's a problem across the board in the last election with the Democratic messaging and, and brand. And you've got to be able to not just try to promise a few things to a couple of groups. You've got to have a consistent and clear message that is promising fairness, justice, and equality across the board, uh, no matter where uh, you are at, and, and then show up for them. So it's not rocket science, but sometimes these consultants that the party pays tries to uh, have them hyper-focused and, and takes us on a tangent. Yeah, no, totally. You know, I know we've we've uh, sort of dissected the twenty one as much as possible. I'm I'm hopeful, really hopeful about twenty twenty two. Nationally, I'm going to do as much as I can to make sure that uh, you know, Democrats retain majorities on the federal level. Um, but you know, looking forward to the future of Virginia, what's something that gives you hope? What's something that we can collectively drive towards? Yeah, I mean, bright spots are we're becoming more, I think, innovative about how we can democratize and talk this podcast, for example. You know, wh- where were we 30, 40 years ago compared to where we can uh, spread information today? Uh, that's a bright spot for people to be able to connect. Second, you know, looking for uh, some of these folks who have figured out how to, how to talk to folks. You know, uh, one good one that I like to point out and I'm a fan. I don't know if you are, but Katie Porter, just bringing out these little whiteboards and, and market things. You know, anything she writes on there, it's like almost anybody can understand what she's talking about. Right. So in other words, it's very relatable, very consumable. And it's like, and she's, and she's taking it to them and it's not being successful by being quote unquote, more moderate or right leaning or whatever it is by really piercing through the veil and saying, I'm going to connect to the everyday voter. And there are some of these bright spots that that we need to uh, to highlight. So there's plenty to be cynical about, but like this great quote that I've used before, you know, our job is to punch holes in the darkness. And so if we keep thinking about punching the holes that need to be punched in the darkness and not just thinking about all the reasons to be cynical, you know, we can keep fighting that good fight. Yeah. So last question, can you recommend for our audience an article, a podcast or a book? One book is uh, Winning with a New Power, How Power Works in Hyperconnected World. It, to me, it was very interesting about how the power dynamics have shifted in, in recent years. And if you can really understand those power dynamics, it will help us to build broader coalitions. Real, the real skinny on that is, you know, when I first got elected, I was kind of of the mindset, oh, I need to do all these things. And if I can let everybody know I did all this stuff and did all these things, then uh, maybe they'll reelect me and I can build coalitions that way. That's not my role. My role is to be a table that gathers connections and resources and further empowers our community members and, and folks throughout the, the progressive circles to say, hey, when you've got something you're working on that we can all rally around, how can I help you succeed? And so winning with the new power or the book New Power is a great take on the dynamics there. Awesome. Well, Sam, again, thank you so much for your time. 
Very exciting to have you as our inaugural guest. Uh, we are very grateful. Thank you so much for having me, Quinn. Delegate Sam Rasool is a member of the Virginia House of Delegates from the 11th District in Southwest Virginia and a member of the Legislative Black Caucus and the Rural Caucus. Thank you so much for listening. This episode was produced by Emily Robinson and Laura McCann. Music was provided by Eric Akers, a.k.a. Fat Milk Productions. A City for All is a podcast presented by Richmond for All, a member-run, member-governed organization working to make Richmond, Virginia, truly a city for all. To donate or join us, check out richmondforall.com. See you in a couple of weeks.